Thank you, John. Well, we're continuing in our study of the gospel according to Luke today, and we're getting closer and closer to the main event, which is Jesus' death on the cross for our sins. So today we're looking at the end of the Roman trial where Jesus is actually condemned, and we see the innocent one condemned by Pilate. Now, when we get to this portion of the gospel accounts, often a question that's been asked is, well, who is really responsible for this greatest evil ever committed in history, putting Jesus Christ on the cross and crucifying the Son of God? Was it the Jews? I mean, particularly we think of Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin themselves, even Judas. Or was it the Romans? especially Pontius Pilate and Herod and the soldiers. You know, many Christians throughout history have actually sought to blame the Jews collectively and ethnically, as though they're God-killers and murderers of their own Messiah. And it's led to a lot of unrighteousness in the name of Christianity, but not, of course, in truth. Scripture doesn't urge Christians to blame a group of people to exonerate themselves though it wouldn't be done today, but to perpetrate wickedness in the name of Christ. That's not what the Scriptures teach us. But it is true that historically speaking, there are certain things that need to be reckoned with and that it's clear that both the Jews and the Romans were responsible. It was necessary for both of them to be involved, actually, as we've been learning, to accomplish a crucifixion as the means of death for Jesus. The gospel accounts themselves are not anti-Semitic in their portrayal of the facts, even if they trace the storyline of the history of redemption and say that the Jewish people rejected their Messiah. The historical question does not and must not seek to assign any kind of categorical blame to particular groups of people. That's been misinterpreted by many people on both sides of the question. And often, though, it's done to draw attention away from really what is the most important question. And that is all around the claims of who Jesus Christ claims to be himself and the claims that he makes upon all people. If we read the Gospels sincerely and the epistles and the rest of Scripture, it reveals a much deeper theology. And so when we ask a question, who put Jesus on the cross? I mean, wasn't it ultimately God the Father working through secondary means of evil men? Did not Jesus himself say that he himself laid down his life? And was not the cross itself for reprobates throughout the world like you and me? Are not both Jews and Gentiles alike under the wrath of God for their sin? And aren't both given the same hope in Jesus Christ. So please turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 23 as we explore this more together this morning, starting in verse 13. You can follow along as I printed it for you in your bulletin or in your Bible. And we'll read about the innocent one who suffered at the hands of men to take our place before God, as we looked at last week, starting in chapter 23, verse 13. Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers of the people And said to them, you brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, 
Nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. But they all cried out together, Away with this man and release to us Barabbas. A man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus, but they kept shouting, Crucify, crucify him. A third time he said to them, Why? What evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified, and their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, for whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. So in our passage today, there is an exchange of a guilty man for an innocent man, Barabbas for Jesus. A sinner is set free while an innocent man dies instead. The implication for gospel readers is obvious. We're to look at ourselves and to consider that the innocent one was given in exchange for the guilty one. For ourselves. And this astonishing injustice that we read in the scriptures of an innocent man being sentenced to crucifixion is just so difficult to understand how it could happen that Luke traces how it actually took place, this atrocity. In verses 13 to 19, we see that Pilate pronounces the verdict not guilty. But in verses 20 to 23, the people basically are threatening to riot unless Jesus is put to death. And so in verses 24 to 25, Pilate decides to release the guilty one and condemn the innocent one. Now remember these trials of Jesus. There were the Jewish trials and there was the Roman trials. There are three parts to each of them. We've been through them all today. We're at the very end. In the Jewish trial, it had three parts. Remember, after Jesus was arrested, Annas, the former high priest, interrogates Jesus briefly, sends him on to the reigning high priest, Caiaphas, for a very intense interrogation, and finally, after the whole evening of abuse, the council meets and condemns him. Well, then the Roman trial has three parts where Pilate has to conduct his own investigation. He sends him off to Herod, but gets mocked by Herod and sent back. And finally, where we are today, Pilate condemns him. Now, our passage in Luke today has parallels in the other gospel writers, as do at this point when we get to this part of Jesus' life, death, and eventually his resurrection. All of the four gospels tell the story in their own way. So in Matthew 27, Mark 15, John 18, and 19, those are the sections that you can look at and compare on your own. But you'll notice that Luke doesn't mention a lot of things that you probably remember from those gospel accounts. He doesn't mention Jesus' scourging itself. He doesn't mention Pilate's hand-washing. He doesn't mention his wife's a warning or further mocking and scourging that took place of Jesus. And we'll do our best this morning to integrate those for you so you can see the whole timeline. But we don't want to miss Luke's point in the midst of all that. He wants his readers to focus on Pilate's repeated, repeated attempts to release Jesus. And he wants us as his readers to further understand 
the theologizing really behind this person of Barabbas in the story because we're to look at ourselves and consider that the innocent one was actually given in exchange for the guilty ones for us. And so we begin again with Pilate pronouncing his verdict. It's not guilty. That's how he found him. This whole reading of the verdict, if you will, in verses 13 to 16 in Luke is unique to Luke. But I do want to back up and remind us again of the Roman trial when it began, starting in verse 1 of chapter 23, before we get to our text. And so the story actually began a little bit earlier. Then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate, that is, the council of the Jewish leaders. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation, forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar, and saying that he himself is Christ a king. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You've said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout Judea, from all Judea, from Galilee even to this place. When Herod heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at the time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, because he had long desired to see him, because he'd heard about him, and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. And the chief priests and scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him. And Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. And then arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that day. For before this, they had been at enmity with each other. And then we come to our story. Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers of the people and said to them, you brought me this man as one who was misleading the people? Well, after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving of death has been done by him, therefore I will punish him and release him. Pilate conducted his own investigation. He proceeds to announce the same verdict he's been announcing. Now it's the second time from verse 4. Right? Behold, he says with solemnity, he finds Jesus not guilty of all of their accusations against him of being some kind of an insurrectionist, a person inciting sedition, a person who's a challenge to Roman authority, a person who somehow is forbidding people to pay their taxes. All these things are made up lies. He's not guilty. Notice that Luke also makes it very clear to us that the people are present in verse 13. Do you see that? In other words, there's going to be a large audience. There was a large audience to hear the verdict from Pilate's own lips that Jesus was not guilty. Again, Luke underscoring for us the innocence of our Lord. Well, Pilate here makes reference to Herod publicly, the Jewish king in some way, that he corroborated his verdict even. There's nothing that Jesus has done that's deserving of death, and consequently Pilate decides to have Jesus scourged lightly and then released. This is a scourging that's just lashes that would lacerate the flesh and cause bleeding at this point. He thinks that would appease the people. They'll get some, some blood out of it, appease the leaders and the supporters, and it would also deter Jesus perhaps from causing any further problems. Well, the leaders in the crowd just cry out, freedom to Barabbas. 
and death to Jesus. And so we read that in verses 18 and 19, but they all cried out together, away with this man and release to us Barabbas, a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection, started in the city, and for murder. Now perhaps it's helpful at this point to hear Matthew's account for some background, Matthew 27, 15 and following. Now at the feast of the governor, it was accustomed to release for the crowd any prisoner whom they wanted. And when they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas, so when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who's called Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up to him. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, have nothing to do with that righteous man. For I have suffered much today in a dream because of him. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and do away with Jesus. The governor again said to them, which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. And so here again we see this tradition that had developed of a paschal pardon, a pardon during the celebration of Passover that the Romans would perform for the Jews. And Pilate determined to take advantage of that situation to release Jesus, who he knew was no real threat to the state, but it would agitate the Jewish leaders all the more. And if you remember, Pilate doesn't like them. And so this is playing right into his hand. He knows that they're just jealous that the people listen to Jesus instead of them. And that they're just pretending to be loyal to Rome. They're not really loyal to Rome. He knows that they want him gone. So Pilate bargains on the people choosing to release Jesus, contemptually designating him as the Christ. Well, Barabbas, which his name means, by the way, son of Abbas or son of the father, it's an unusual name, but it's not uncommon, especially for a son of a rabbi, which could be the case in his situation. But Barabbas is a really unimportant prisoner in a lot of ways. He was a popular small-time hero at the moment. Not, not that popular with the Jewish leaders. He led an, an unsuccessful insurrection, and he committed murder in Jerusalem. So Pilate thought it might take with the people and uh, further agitate the leaders. It's impossible, isn't it, to overlook the irony, though, of the meaning of his name? The people choose to release Barabbas, the son of the Father, but they condemn Jesus Christ, who is the eternal son of God the Father? Pilate then gets interrupted by this urgent message from his wife. Her name is Procla, and later, according to Christian tradition, she became a believer in Jesus Christ. Well, she sends an urgent message to her husband. She had a terrifying dream on account of Jesus, the one she calls the righteous man. It's God's statement to Pilate of the righteousness of his son. And it's also a warning that if he releases the guilty and condemns the innocent, he'll be held accountable. And being a superstitious pagan as he was, he would probably be quite fearful of some kind of an omen like this, a dream coming to him from his wife. We don't really know how Pilate responded to that particular report other than it contributes in the storyline more urgency he wants to release Jesus, who's the innocent one. But meanwhile, the Jewish leaders are working the crowd 
to choose to release Barabbas and condemn Jesus, probably telling them things like, well, Jesus has committed blasphemy. You know, he's claiming to be the Son of God. He's claiming he's going to come and rule with power, these types of things. And eventually the people lean toward releasing Barabbas, and the mob mentality starts to take over. So after Pilate asks again for their selection, they choose Barabbas, and he is surely surprised. Now, as Luke tells us the story, he keeps the storyline on Barabbas pretty short compared to the other gospel accounts because he wants us to focus on two words, right? That Jesus is not guilty. True to his verdict, Pilate is going to try over and over again to release Jesus, the innocent one. And as Luke wrote this gospel, he's having us start to take notice of the exchange that would be taking place. You can already sense it yourself as a reader of Luke's gospel. And we're supposed to look at ourselves and consider that the innocent one is the one who would be given in exchange for us, the guilty ones. We know who we are. Well, next, the situation really starts to get out of control because the people are threatening to riot unless Jesus gets crucified. And things happen rather chaotically and quickly, and they start to, to threaten. Now, somewhere during this whole chaotic proceeding, Pilate has Jesus whipped, just like he said, in hope that he would appease the crowd and appease the leaders. In John's gospel, we get a much fuller account, John 19, starting in verse 1. You can turn there if you'd like, but I'll read it for you this morning. John 19 starting in verse 1. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and put him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. And Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. Pilate, in the story of Luke here, starting in verse 20, it's the second attempt now to release Jesus. So Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus, but they just kept shouting, Crucify him, crucify him. They mentioned this penalty, crucifixion. The Jews weren't allowed to execute people, which would have been by stoning anyway, not crucifixion. Pilate is mocking them, of course. And Jesus is being tried for treason against Rome, so crucifixion would be the penalty. It's the ultimate in death penalty, invented by the Persians as a very sadistic method. We'll look at it more next section when we look at Jesus' actual crucifixion. It was reserved for the worst offenders, though, in fact, Roman citizens would be exempt from it unless condemned specifically by a direct order from Caesar. Well, Luke emphasizes for us yet again the innocence of Jesus by means of Pilate's attempted release yet again. Pilate wants to let him go, but the people just keep shouting louder and louder and louder, crucify, crucify him. So Pilate then tries to release him again, and we read in verse 22, a third time he said to them, why? What evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving of death. I will therefore punish and release him. 
But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified, and their voices prevailed. Now, at some point in here, the Son of God blasphemy claim gets brought to the surface too. So continuing back in the Gospel according to John, we read, the Jews answered him, I, we have a law, and according to that law, he has to die because he himself claimed to be the Son of God. Now, when Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. I mean, think of all these things that Pilate's going through with his wife's notion and his own understanding and his own investigation, and now this. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at the place called the Stone Pavement in Aramaic Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was the sixth hour, and he said to the Jews, Behold your king. And they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? And the chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. Now back to Luke's account. Pilate's astounded that they want Jesus crucified. And he essentially repeats his own verdict that we read about in verses 14 to 16 in his offer to scourge him and to release him. Perhaps it was even going on at the exact same time here. And the innocent theme continues back from verse 4, even in 20, 23 verse 4, when it says, I find no guilt in this man. And then enforces verses 14 and 15. And Herod sends him back in 20 and 21. And now on in verse 22. But the urgent, strident, insistent, loud voice of the Jewish people for injustice prevails upon Pilate. And the people threaten to riot unless Jesus gets crucified. This is the state of affairs. Now after a second and a third release attempt, a scourging, and many verbal exchanges. The looming exchange with Barabbas is prefiguring, of course, the real exchange that we all know about for us, because as we read this, we're supposed to be looking at ourselves and considering that the innocent one would be the one who would be given for us the guilty ones. And so then Pilate releases the guilty, and he condemns the innocent. So Pilate decided, verse 24, that their demand should be granted. Notice he doesn't change his verdict, just the sentence. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder for whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. Now likely this is where the hand-washing episode occurs that Matthew records in chapter 27. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, His blood be on us and on our children. 
Then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. So Pilate gives in. As I mentioned, he doesn't change his sentence. I mean, he changes the sentence, but he doesn't change his verdict. And so he releases Barabbas to them, and Luke emphasizes again. Did you notice that? His character and the charges? He repeats it. He just said that he was an insurrectionist and a murderer, and now he repeats it again as he records it for us in verse 24. That's who he was. The highlights us once more that Jesus is innocent and Barabbas is guilty. And Pilate gives Jesus over to their will. He doesn't want to riot because he's under pressure to keep peace among the Jewish people for the Roman government. And so he considers it, and we notice here Luke's recount, it's their decision, really, to crucify Jesus. Well, in these final events on the way to the cross, and we'll look at the cross in more detail next time in Luke, but typically what would take place is there would be a so-called merciful scourging prior to the actual crucifixion where a whip of leather straps and bone and metal would shred the back and expose bone and organs. And it was often mentioned that the Jews had a limit of 40 lashes, while the Romans had only limited it by the whim of the perpetrators. It doesn't sound very merciful, of course. It sounds brutal, which it is, but it would hasten a person's death upon the cross, which is a good thing. Well, this scourging that we're talking about here at the end of this passage is the one you read about in Matthew 27 and Mark 15, along with further mocking, the fourth time that mocking is recorded of Jesus. And it's the final scourging, the one that is preparatory for the actual crucifixion, not the light scourging from before. So in Mark 15, let me read to you the account. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak and twisting together a crown of thorns, put it on him. And they began to salute him. Hail, king of the Jews. And they were striking his head with a reed, mock staff, and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak, put his own clothes back on him, and let him out to crucify him. Now some think that the scourging has already been done and there's no need to really posit a second scourging and furthermore it's, it's hard to believe anyone could endure it again a second time. However, as I mentioned, the earlier beating was really only for punishment purposes and could have been a very light scourging in reference there and not the normal preparatory scourging that would take people to the edge of death before they were crucified, from which no one could recover. And perhaps it could all simply be seen as one, though, and this is the completion of Jesus being scourged right prior to his crucifixion. But Luke's focus for us again is that Pilate releases the guilty one, and he condemns the innocent one. Yes, this is the greatest of all tragedies, but of course, there's more to the story because Luke also intends for us to read the good news as the prophets foretold from Isaiah where it speaks about the crucifixion of the Messiah. It also speaks about the glories of this event. In Isaiah 53, 12, 
prophet writes, he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. So we should look at ourselves and consider that the innocent one was given in exchange for our life so that we would have eternal life, which we'll talk more about in a moment. So who's responsible? When people ask you that question, or maybe you have it yourself, for the greatest evil perpetrated in history, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, I want you to see for yourself and listen to how the Apostle Peter answered this in a way just a few weeks afterwards. So turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 3, verse 13. Acts chapter 3, verse 13. So again, this is only a few weeks after the event of Jesus' crucifixion and, of course, his resurrection that we know about as well. And Luke is the author of Acts as well. So he's recording this, 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 this speech of Peter. So starting in verse 13, Peter says, The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you, certain of us Jewish people he's talking about, delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. I'll skip down to verse 17. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your rulers. Think of Caiaphas and Herod and the Sanhedrin. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn again that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for the restoring of all the things about which God spoke by the prophets, his holy prophets long ago. And then later on in Acts, Luke reveals that there's plenty of blame to go around in Acts chapter 4, 27. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Even our Apostle Paul comes to the simple conclusion in 1 Corinthians 2 and says, none of the rulers of the sage understood this. That is, the purposes of God. His wisdom in the Christ suffering on the cross for the sins of the world. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory, the Apostle Paul says. So the answer is that many, many people in particular, and as groups, are guilty, historically speaking. But if we look more closely at God's eternal counsel and purposes revealed in Scripture, we come to a much fuller understanding and realize that that really isn't the best question to be asking. And trying to blame ignorant people, as the Scripture says, over something like this just goes too far and too far afield. Because ultimately, it's God the Father who did it 
That was the purpose in his sending his son into the world to be the propitiation for our sins, the satisfaction for justice, for reprobate sinners around the world like you and like me who are guilty before God and need our sins atoned for. All humanity, Jews and Gentiles, are under the wrath of God for their sins and all are extended the same hope in Jesus Christ. A final passage of Scripture I want to bring to your attention is Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 22. You know it well. It's the summary of the gospel and why Jesus died. Romans 3.22. And why he was raised to life again. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. He bought us on that cross, you see. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine foreparents he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Jesus is the innocent one condemned in our place. We all made it necessary. Luke's main concern is not to tell us that Jesus is innocent of political instigations, of religious error, or some historical legal sense. He's innocent in the ultimate sense, as the righteous, perfect, holy Son of God who was sacrificed for the guilty one. And we are the sinners set free. Jesus was crucified on our behalf. And the application, of course, is quite, quite simple. Have you been set free from your sin? Have you repented and put your faith in this Jesus who was offered in your place? And if that's true of you, and for many of us in this room, it definitely is, the application is to reflect upon who Jesus is as the innocent one given for the guilty one, and every one of us only looks to ourself. We are the sinners set free. This passage of Scripture tells us about an astonishing exchange that happened historically of a notorious sinner named Barabbas who's set free while an innocent man, Jesus the Christ, dies unjustly instead. However, this passage of Scripture implies so much more. And it demands that we look at ourselves, and again I'll say it, that we consider that the innocent one was given in exchange for us, the guilty ones. Let us pray and give praise to Jesus. Lord Jesus, we thank you for offering up yourself in our place. That our sins you bore, as the Scriptures say, and that God is just, is satisfied. We thank you that by faith in you, we can be saved from our sins. For you are the one given in our place. And I pray this morning for anyone here who has not yet made that movement in their soul of repenting of their sin and putting their trust in you, Lord Jesus, that you would move them to that today and that they could be a sinner set free. And for those of us who have been set free, we pray that we would feel that we've been set free indeed and that our sins are completely forgiven.
and that you, Lord Jesus, are worthy of all of our worship and our adoration and our praise. And it's for your glory that we pray this. Amen.